The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit voicesofwrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway, in a brand new day, gotta let it go. Fast to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch, episode 44, covering Enter the Dragon 2013, the fourth anniversary show for Dragon Gate USA from the Highline Ballroom in New York City on July 28th, 2013. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find our podcast in the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to this show, just click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our redcircle.com landing page. Just click the link that says donate to the show, and you can do a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but I would like to thank all of our previous donors. I am one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined, as always, by my co-host, Renkase Low. In case four years have passed, and now we are at the Highline Ballroom for Dragon Gate USA's fourth anniversary it's our final anniversary show we're truly in the backstretch now and boy what things are happening in wrestling in 2013 it's bizarre to think after this episode we have six episodes left this is the fourth and final dragon usa anniversary show although in a few episodes i have some notes on the fifth anniversary show that i found which uh i was very very intrigued by when i when i read what i read but it is the fourth anniversary show. I, this show, I'm so excited to talk about. So much stuff happened on this show, but also so much stuff happened in the wrestling world. And we are going to start our timeline today in Japan and run down what was going on in Dragon Gate at the time. I'll say up top, I think if you were to differentiate, uh, differentiate the Dragon Gate lineage... I think 2011 with Blood Warriors versus Junction 3 is a very set-in-stone period. People recognize that. They know exactly what that era was. 2012 under the first part of 2013 is kind of dragging it out in the wilderness. It's a promotion that it's good, but it doesn't really have a distinct feel to it. 
what we're about to hit now, we're going to start at Dead or Alive 2013 and work our way through Kobe World 2013. And I think starting with Dead or Alive, there is a distinct era of this promotion from here through when Tozawa exits the company, I think is very much an era of this promotion. And it's very clear when you look at this Dead or Alive 2013 card, which opened with Horiguchi, Kanda, and Saito defeating Cyber Kong, Super Shenlong, and Super Shisa. You had Kness and Katoka defeating Jimmy Kagatora and Mr. Naoki Tanazaki Dolphin. Jimmy Susumu defeated Ricochet in a singles match. This Open the Triangle Gate match sounds terrific. It was Doi, Rich Swan, and Sachi Hoko Boy defeating Don Fuji, Hubbo, and Masaki Mochizuki. And then your final three matches, Masada Yoshino ends Dragon Kid's 364-day reign as Open the Brave Gate champion. Uh, the Akatsuki team of Shingo and Yamato end the brief reign of BB Hulk and Uha Nation, the Twin Gate division, and your main event, Shima defends the Open the Dream Gate title against Akira Tozawa. Mike, your memories of this show. Well, this was like one of the ones that before they started having the cage matches. There was yeah, no this cage is, match. This is the final one. They bring the cage, bat, the, the cage match into 2014. Right. And really, it's something that, like when you talk about like these eras, and you just like look at this card with all the title matches... You have Naruki Doi in the Triangle Gate match. You have Masato Yoshino in the Brave Gate match. You have Shingo, Yamato, and Hulk in the Twin Gate match. And you have Tozawa. The Big Six era really started with the end of Blood Warriors. Like, this was, like, the final shift. Yes, Shima was champion, but you look at the focus on the show. Like, Masaki Mochizuki's in a notable, like, step back where he's doing team veteran stuff where he was with Mochi Fuji Tag for such a long time. But the big takeaway from this match is I think this is the best match that Masato, Yoshino, and Dragon Kid have together on this card. I want to say this is my favorite one of their of their series. It has been a really long time since I've seen this, but I probably agree with you because I think it's better than their their Gate of Destiny 2008 match, which is I don't know why it's one of the most readily available Dragon Gate matches there is. That match circulated incredibly well and still does to this day. They obviously had the series in Dragon Gate USA, the match on the first Dragon Gate UK show. But yeah, this is probably the best that Yoshino and Dragon Kid ever got out of each other. Yeah, and you follow that up with a truly phenomenal Twin Gate match. Awesome match. I, I mean, Shingo and Yamato, especially at this point where they're kind of our two guys in divergent like careers they're not going to be as wrapped up with each other going forward especially after the big turn that's going to happen soon like you have that uh hulk and uha i mean it was a good way of getting uha back into the company he'd become a bigger figure with that and it just was like a it was i like the yoshino and dk match but kind of the consensus of this show came away with the twin gate match being the match of the night how do you feel about the Shima versus Tozawa match? Do you like this uh, more or less than the World 2012 main event? I, uh, well, for one, I don't think very highly of Shima versus Tozawa matches, really. Yeah, you don't like, they had a King of Gate match in 2016 that I remember losing my mind for at the time, and I, I remember you were just not into it at all. I just, it, it, it's a me thing. I don't think these two work well together. Because I know which one I, I know the King Gate match you're talking about. Because I thought that Tozawa was the main of the tournament, but I thought that all of his matches, other than that Shima match, were great. I, so. I need to go back and rewatch that Shima match because knowing what we know about their relationship now, I remember at the time thinking like, "Man, this match is really stiff. It's it's just oddly violent for a Dragon Gate King of Gate match." 
I think we know why now. I would like to go back and revisit that. I, I will say to answer my own question, I preferred this match to the World 2012 match. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm with you on that. So from there, we move to King of Gate, and we're going to talk about the King of Gate tournament specifically, and then we'll backtrack to a few other matches that happen on the May Cork and Hall show. But the televised stuff, I'll focus on the televised stuff in case you guys want to track any of this down. From King of Gate 2013, it began on May 10th in Cork and Hall with Don Fuji defeating Kotoka, Genki Horiguchi defeating Rich Swan, Shingo Takagi defeating BB Hulk, and Yamato defeating Masaki Mochizuki. Mike, that is an incredible opening round of matches. Yeah, and of course, they did the thing of having uh, Hulk and Takagi be the headliner out of those four. And, you know, for someone like Rich Swan getting these opportunities, like we've talked about enough on the show, but Swan was a real solid point of DGUSA or Dragon Gate Japan at this point. And Katoka. Uh, poor Katoka. <laughs> the, the, Katoka gets wrecked for like six <laughs> minutes, if my memory serves me right. More Rich Swan praise coming up later on in this show, specifically with his work in Japan. From there, we go to the second round of the tournament where we see the other block get televised matches with Jimmy Susumu defeating Dragon Kid and Ricochet defeating Masato Yoshino. That happened on May 17th in Kobe Sambo Hall. And then we get our King of Gate semifinals and finals, which happened at Osaka number two, May 25th, 2013. This show had in the semifinals Shingo defeating Yamato and Ricochet getting his win back from the Dead or Alive match. He defeats Jimmy Susumu. Your main event, King of Gate 2013 finals, Ricochet defeats Shingo Takagi. Yeah, this is something that it's very hard to remember we're entering like an 18 month period where if you just like take it as like as a shoot ricochet is probably the most successful wrestler on the planet Uh, other than maybe okada tanahashi and john cena from a kayfabe perspective no one's close i mean he's in that that literal upper echelon i i mean we're talking about through the end of 2014 where he wins this we will actually get a chance to cover his uh, open the the Dream Gate Championship case. We'll get a chance to talk about that on the series. That's right. And then he wins Bola. He wins DG USA Freedom Gate after the the dissolution of Dragon Gate USA, and he's just like winning everything everywhere. He has like he has like a tag team title reign, I believe, with Swan and PWG at the same time too. Like he's just on another level. It, it's insane. That's that's a good point. I was going to talk later on in the show about somebody that. I just wrestling is broken because this person wasn't handed a multi-year television contract at the end of this show. But Ricochet is probably the greater crime there because he was doing such incredible work at this point. The other thing I want to mention, well, quickly, just Ricochet's King of Gate run. He defeats Ryo Saito in the first round in a non-televised match and then defeats Yoshino, Susumu, and Shingo in a matter of a week. And the Susumu and Shingo matches on this final show are unbelievable. Ricochet versus Shingo is everything you want it to be. Yeah, and it's something where he becomes the first ever Gaijin to win the uh, open or to win the King of Gate. We'll talk about it being the first ever Gaijin to win the Open the Dream Gate. But this is really like we're entering a peak here, and I was noticing this when we get into the show itself, guys. We're probably in my favorite period of Ricochet's career right now. And it's just so depressing to think like now we're in 2021 and and I'm reminiscing about this guy eight years ago and he's still, I think, four years younger than I am. And at age 22, was one of the best wrestlers on the planet. 
Yeah, the other thing that I, I didn't really have in my notes just because there was already a lot of stuff to talk about, but he did Super Juniors around this time period too. Uh, it starts, let me see when his first match was in this tournament, but this was his first foray into New Japan. And so the day before he beat Shingo in Cork and Hall, he wrestles Trent Beretta and defeats him. And then he goes on to wrestle Rocky Romero, Prince Devitt, a young boy, Hiromu Takahashi, Teton, Taichi, Jushin Thunder Liger, who he beats, and then Alex Shelley in that tournament. So Ricochet is now expanding his profile even more. Somebody that was just starting their career at this point that debuted on the May 25th show, and this match is available on the Drangate Network, Uha Nation versus the debuting Ryotsu Shimizu. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so someone that we don't have to go like, who you probably know is, you, you know him as Ryotsu Shimizu this year. They, yes. Thanks, guys, for making it easier on us in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> so that match, like I said, that is on the Drangate Network under the you were young then series where they were showing debut matches. It is very fun because you get to see the wacky anime character where Shimizu 100% commits to the bit. And then also it's a four minute squash match where Uha nation looks like a Greek God. So I highly recommend tracking that down. Yeah. He just throws him around, which that's something considering that how big of a person Ryosu Shimizu is. Very impressive. Yes. So, uh, I want to quickly backtrack to the May 10th Cork and Hall show from 2013. We talked about the King of Gate matches, which was Fuji versus Kotoka, Yamato versus Mochizuki, Horiguchi versus Swan, and Shingo versus Hulk. We did not talk about the main event on that show, which was Jimmy Susumu, Kness, and Shima against Akira Tozawa, KZ, and Uha Nation. This was a six-man tag match that led directly to the revival for one night only after the match. It was agreed upon that Masaki Mochizuki would team up with Kness and Susumu, and they would reform M2K. This happens on the June 5th Cork and Hall show. I will talk about the stuff that matters on this show. Uh, match, what was this? Match, match four, Masato Yoshino and Ricochet versus Shima and Dragon Kid. And then from there, things only get better as we get Hulk versus Yamato, Shingo defeating Uha Nation, and then that Open the Triangle Gate main event, which was Jimmy Susumu, Kness, and Masaki Mochizuki in their full M2K Yokosuka Jumper dyed hair scooter uh, riding glory, defeating Naruki Doi, Rich Swan, and Sachihoko Boy for the Open the Triangle Gate championships. And it's something that, like, sadly, you can't get too much footage of the M2K entrance when they come out to the machine gun elephant. And it's just such like a, it, this was like the first time they did it. And it was such a landmark thing for it's like, Oh wait, the original bad guys are back. And it just was awesome that it happened. And, you know, kind of like started like Mochizuki did his own thing, but he was more than willing to hang out with the Jimmy's a lot. I don't know. Cause I haven't seen this match in a pretty long time now, but my instinct is that this is perhaps the best match that Rich Swan was ever involved with because this has just so many things going for it. It's a fun nostalgia match, but it's legitimately great. And the crowd is so invested in the near falls towards the end, especially when Kness is doing that rolling cradle pin that he does. I can't think of the name of it, but Hikari Noah. Thank you. He, gets so much heat 
out of that one move and the crowd is so invested in this. This is, to me, I don't know how you feel about it. This is like a top tier all time open the Triangle Gate match. You know, it probably would not make my first DVD comp of Triangle Gate matches, but definitely be on my second. I, I think that's that's very fair. So we have at this point a debuting Shimizu. Ricochet is on top of the world. We have M2K reforming. And that leads us to Champion Gate in Osaka on June 15th and June 16th. The stuff that matters on the show is the title matches, which on the 15th show was Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk versus Shingo and Yamato for the Open the Twin Gate titles. In this match, Yamato turns on Shingo. He turns heel. And with that, the team of Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk win the Open the Twin Gate belts. And then on June 16th, Champion Gate in Osaka, the M2K trio loses the Triangle Gate belts. They lose to Horiguchi, Kanda, and Saito. The Jimmys were upset with Susumu for basically abandoning them, and they got their revenge by winning the belts. And then our main event, a match that, to my knowledge, maybe I'm forgetting, but I don't think anybody outside of the venue has ever seen this match. It never made tape. Shima defending the Open the Dream Gate belt against Ricochet. Yeah, none of this made tape. Sadly. Sucks. Well, but I feel like I've seen the Yamato turn in a video package. So these yeah. shows were filmed. Yeah, no, these shows these shows were filmed. For some reason, they did not tape Champion Gate for over this time period. I don't know why. I don't know why they didn't make air, especially with all those things. But like this was also at a time where like they had like the weird TV deals where like Memorial Gate would only come out on DVD much later. So there might be footage of this lying around. I would have to do some snooping into uh, eBay, Japanese second sellers, I guess, really. But it, it's got to be out there somewhere. But none of it has made like their TV program. Would you say it is in your top five Dragon System Holy Grail matches? Well, the problem is that my top five already exists, Case. Oh, please, please explain. I don't know what that means. So... There is someone who was in the early days of Toriumon who <laughs> never made tape, in case knows exactly where I'm going with this, has some links into an episode that we were talking about earlier when we were talking about like the weird splits and all the things that was happening. One Tomohiro Ishii spent a good amount of time in Toriumon, basically up until 2001, having a series of matches, I think there's 11 of them, with Soccer Chikawa. I want to watch all those matches just back to back to back just injected in my vein so after that i mean it would be up there especially like ricochet that time versus shima and his final title match before he drops the belt to shingo and ends his reign like there's a lot of stuff on those shows that i find very intriguing yeah it's it's really up there for me i think it's a fascinating match it's the only singles match they ever have against one another they were excellent tag team partners but this was their only singles match i would really like to track it down you mentioned the weird broadcasting deals that were going on in Dragon at the time, and perhaps how some footage was hard to come by. Well, things became much easier to watch Dragon and Cork and Hall, as on July 4th, we get the 300th memory special broadcast from Cork and Hall, the first Dragon show to be broadcast live on Ustream iPay-Per-View across the globe. And I will run down this card for you real quick. It opened with Rich Swan, Ricochet, and Sachi Hoko Boy defeating Genki Horiguchi, Jimmy Kanda, and Naoki Tanazaki. Cyber Kong defeated Jimmy Kakatora. Dragon Kid and Gamma defeated KZ and Mondai Ryu. Kness defeated Hubbo in 11 minutes. Inject that match into my veins. 
And then our final two matches, Shingo Takagi versus Akira Tozawa in a singles match. This goes six minutes and 54 seconds. Shingo squashes Tozawa en route to his Dreamgate Challenge at Kobe World. And then your main event, the open lottery 10-man tag with your special referee, Jimmy Kanda, Shima, Don Fuji, Masaki Mochizuki, Ryo Saito, and Uha Nation defeat BB Hulk, Jimmy Susumu, Masato Yoshino, Naruki Doi, and Yamato. Mike, were you watching this show live? What are your memories here? Oh, yeah, I watched the show live. Yeah. As soon as I had the ability to, I was going to, you, you know me, I, I, as an obsessive at heart, I was going to catch that it just was such like a wild thing of finally watching the thing i've been following really in earnest for six seven years seeing it live like that versus waiting two months for the uh or waiting for like a month for like the dvd for the files that hit the internet so it was really exciting uh the the, my one like memory of like the undercard is i wanted kness and habo to be a lot more than what it was yes like it's kind of disappointing and then like this open lottery match they kind of did a just a random draw to decide these teams and you had a pretty it ended up pretty convenient for them in some ways where you have basically almost all of the big six on one side who weren't in that singles match versus basically the veterans and Uha. Yeah, Uha Nation's the one there that really sticks out like a sore thumb, but Uha at this point is very intriguing because he's still fresh off of returning from injury. And yet you look at his output, that brief pairing he had with BB Hulk, where they have a number of excellent Twin Gate matches. And then he's in this match. And from my memory, he holds his own against some of Dragon Gate's best talent ever. Yeah, no, it, it, it's a fun kind of show. It, it was like more of a landmark event. That's kind of wild to think about in retrospect that we don't talk about the first ever Dragon Gate live stream improper, especially now that everything's live stream that makes tape. So it, it, it's one of those things that it was a big moment and of course like Ustream was the dominant force in streaming until it shut down like it's insane like how dedicated and i remember hearing this is just an aside and i'm not certain if i'm right but i want to believe that the uh, new japan and the dragon gate buys on these Ustream things completely blew apart whatever pay-per-views that they were doing on Ustream at that time like it was insane like the amount of uh interest there were just for this on this format that would have stuff that had like 10 or 20 buys. Well, okay. So say, say that again, they were doing surprisingly little buys or a lot of buys, a lot of buys. Okay. Like the remainder of the service, however, was doing very little buys. And that's what they did away I with gotcha. it. Yeah. But they couldn't justify it. Then that's when we had like the weird period where everyone was on Nico Nico before they launched their own network. Yeah. I mean, I don't like, I don't know if people remember this, but Ustream folded, I know the 2014 G1 was there. I think Ustream was up and at least running New Japan shows through September of 2014. But there was a a month and a half period where people did not know what the fate of streaming Japanese wrestling was going to be to a point that King of Pro Wrestling 2014, which has AJ Styles versus Hiroshi Tanahashi for the IWGP heavyweight title, that match was broadcast live on Nico Nico. And that was the first time that Americans were trying to deal with that service. Now, obviously, December of 2014, things turn around, New Japan World launches, and then from there you have Wrestle Kingdom not only available on New Japan World in, in early 2015, but you also have that year was the Global Force I or the the Global Force pay per view, not the i pay per view, but the, the television pay per view. But there was a two month period there where specifically King of Pro Wrestling 2014 and then Power Struggle 2014, which 
I think has a five-star match on it with Tomohiro Ishii and Hiroki Goto. Uh, those were Nico Nico broadcasts, and Americans were tra- and, and just Westerners were trying to figure out that system. New Japan got their world service much quicker than the Drangate Network launch, and we unfortunately spent years dealing with smiling points and just Banks. God, Nico Nico sucked so much. I can't believe that people still use Nico Nico, but they do. It, those I know are, a lot those of are the... sick people. And I'm glad they do it because <laughs> they watch the shows and then upload it to make it much easier for me to watch them, but they are sick people. The, yeah, yeah. So the, it just was a remarkable time, and it kind of like set up that Dragon Gate basically went all Corkins and big shows on Ustream through the end of Ustream in 2014. And that leads us to the final Dragon Gate Japan note that we have. July 21st, the Kobe World Pro Wrestling Festival. Like I said, this was broadcast live on Ustream iPay-Per-View. Dave Meltzer has a review of this show in the July 29th Wrestling Observer Newsletter. I'm actually going to read what he said as it pertains to the opening match, which was uh, Rich Swan, Sachi Hoko Boy, and Super Shisa defeating Chihiro Tamanaga, Super Shenlong, and Kotoka. It should be noted that this was Rich Swan's final match in Japan. He does not return after this. He has not returned since. But in the Observer for this show, Dave says this was really the Swan show. This is the kind of guy TNA needs to be the face of the X Division. That's Dave writing, but I read that verbatim. This is the kind of guy TNA needs to be the face of the X Division. He's 22. His offensive moves and acrobatic skills are state of the art, and he's got a lot of charisma. He's very small, but in today's wrestling, that doesn't matter if you can turn on a crowd swan wrapped his way to the ring he tore down the house with a on his first high spot his gymnastic ability puts everyone to shame similar to ricochet while ricochet at this point is a better pro wrestler swan has tons more natural charisma mike what do you think about that i think that's a fair statement yeah if you're like a first-time viewer like especially considering that dave would have seen some ricochet at that time and Rich Swan, he was not really watching DGUSA at this time, so he hasn't really seen Rich Swan's ascent there. But I don't think that's an unfair assessment to be made in 2013. No, I was ecstatic when I read this line because it goes to what I've said for a very long time, which is at this point, once we hit 2013, Swan's run on the indies until he signed is outstanding. He is essentially the independent version of an excellent TV wrestler. He's always having these three-and-a-half-star level matches, and the opener on this show was a brilliant farewell for, for him to Dragon Gate. And then from there, Yoshiaki Fujiwara, who we have talked about at length on this podcast, he defeats Stalker Ichikawa, Cyber Kong, Hubbo, and Nozawa Ron Guy defeat Jimmy Kagatora, Jimmy Susumu, and Naoki Tanizaki, and then we get into the business end of the card with Horiguchi, Kanda, and Saito defeating not only Don Fuji, Dragon Kid, and Gamma, but also KZ, Mandai Ryo, and Uha Nation. The Open the Brave Gate match with Masato Yoshino defeating Kaness. No disqualifications match. I think this is a super, super underrated match. Yamato defeats Masaki Mochizuki in a no-DQ singles match. And then your big two matches to close out the card. Naruki Doi and Ricochet win the Twin Gate belts from Akira Tozawa and BB Hulk. And after 18 months and 574 days, Shingo Takagi ends Shima's Open the Dreamgate title run. Just an insane, like, business half of this card. Like, Yoshino versus Kness. You know how I was kind of down on Kness and Habu on that previous Korkin? This match is worth going out of your way to see because this is when Kness 
he doesn't he's not able to do this that much often nowadays like he's not he doesn't often do this but he was able to turn back the clock and especially against the rival who he romanticizes the hot fighting and developed the sol no chisel submission as a transition from the sol naciente that's really cool uh yamato versus misaki mochizuki this is a match that like it's a sick match like i'm actually somewhat offended by dave star rating here because i'm easily <laughs> uh almost a full star higher than him on this match it's that good of a match and then i mean die fly versus a hulk and akira man like that is with the exception like this is we are going to be entering a stretch that we that we've talked about on the main show but where the twin gate matches steal the show every single year at at kobe pro wrestling festival and it starts here. This is a weird show where that Twin Gate match is still the standard bearer for Joe Lanza of the flagship podcast. That is what he rates every Twin Gate match against. I don't know if that's fair, but that is what Joe has done for the last eight years because that match left such a big impression on him. Well, first off, that's a sicko move, and that's unfair <laughs> to other matches. It's completely not fair. Especially given that the match of the next year, I think, is even better than this. Yeah, it, I, this is, I mean, I, I, I love Joe's coverage of Dragon Gate, but it's very funny to me that this show is still referenced because he constantly puts <laughs> over Ricochet and Doi versus Hulk and Tozawa as a state-of-the-art modern tag team match, and then whenever Shima comes into conversation, Joe is like, ah, that Shima-Shingo match, I just, I don't know if Shima's ever had a good singles match. I'm like, well, hold on just a second. He's like, I don't know, that 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 Dream Game match never did a thing for me. I was like, well, it did for most people, so I don't know what to tell you. I mean, he's not completely wrong, but saying good versus truly uh, may, exceptional Maybe, maybe he said great. I, I, I apologize for fake newsing Joe there. I believe his argument is that Shima's never had a great singles match. Which is still, I mean, him I, I, first. Personally, I don't agree with that statement, but that's no, okay. no. That, that that's his statement that's his uh that, that, that that's his ledge to lie on I, I will say i am looking at my old dragon gate review blog which i don't i don't know how many people know about this i don't uh recently somebody like publicly mentioned uh that they still check back to the site for some dragon gate stuff which really made me laugh because i wrote this stuff in the summer of 2014 but i have a review of every kobe world show from 2004 to 2014 if you can track down this website my star ratings for the final four matches i went four stars on yoshino versus kness four and a half on yamato versus mochizuki four and a half on the twin gate match which is probably low i should probably bump that up a quarter star and four and a quarter on shima versus shingo i think other than i would have bumped the twin gate match i think that those are completely fair assessments like this the shingo match is he has a better shingo match later yes final gate 2015 you, you know i mean it, it was kind of like the big moment of who can stop who can stop the shima and finally it was shingo takagi and boy and that really launches like the big six era in a lot of ways so we talked about like the end of blood warriors junction three kind of is the start because especially how much the storylines started revolving world one international versus matt blanky but things are going to be like i'm just now realizing what's going to go on over the next four months around the cover in the next timeline for dragon gate and things are about to start coming hot and heavy because they're about to go into a major unit shift I, I was just about to say like the booking the build to shingo winning this title was done so exceptionally well and then august of 2013 happens and it's batshit the booking is unbelievable <laughs> in specifically the month of august like yeah by september things are normal again 
August of 2013 is, pardon my French, fucking insane. And to a point that I, I could be I could be wrong, but I believe this is when Brad Garoon stops following Dragon Gate because August of 2013 broke him. Yeah, no. Well, when we talk about unit shifts and like when we were like, oh no, this one's taking a while. Like, you know, it's this. We didn't get that opportunity in 2013. <laughs> it, it was mind melting, and we'll get into that. And I think probably either next episode, episode after next, because it, it, things are about to be, as you said, fucking insane in Japan. My final note on Kobe World 2013. I'm looking at gifts of this Yamato versus Mochizuki match that that I made seven years ago. And there is a point of this match where Yamato goes to do a spinning toe hold on Mochizuki and Mochizuki counters it with a roundhouse kick to the head. It is one of the greatest counters I have ever seen. Masaki Mochizuki is one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. That match is so underrated and Kobe world 2013 is on the network. If you are a Dragon Gate network subscriber, go check this match out. Absolutely. Just it, it's worth, it's worth your while, but case we have something that like kind of weirdly figures into my sphere of influence because i was definitely following this promotion because how insane it got even though i dropped off for a while we need to talk about chikara yes so i feel like mike and i have done a pretty good job on this show of specifically talking about ring of honor and where they're at we've been talking about pwg and what they're doing and we've talked a little bit about Chikara. Certainly when Quackenbush and Jigsaw were mainstays in the promotion, we talked a lot more about Chikara. But at this point, they are the focal point of indie wrestling, and that is about to drastically change. I want to quickly thank our listeners, Aquan Quinn, who is a very nice guy who constantly interacts with us on Twitter. He reminded me that the Chikara shutdown happened at this time <laughs> period. I thought it was in 2014, now, I probably would have come across it in The Observer just reading stuff for this show regardless, but he specifically reminded me, and I made sure to jot it down, so thank you to him. He is a, a, a great listener, and I'm glad that he reminded me of this crucial moment in professional wrestling history, and I will read from The Observer June 10th, 2013. Dave says, The future of the Chikara promotion is definitely in question. They had an eye-pay-per-view from the Trocadero in Philadelphia on June 2nd, and there were all kinds of rumors before the show that it would be the last one, claiming for reasons having to do with the divorce of owner Mike Quackenbush that he had opened a second promotion, Wrestling is Fun, and basically Chikara would continue with a new name under the new banner. During the week, the rumors were enough that those in Chikara denied them. After the show, they continued to deny there's anything to do with them, and it was all the conclusion of a long, formulated angle. The main event on June 2nd was Grand Champion Eddie Kingston versus Icarus. In the middle of the match, Condor Security and Wink Van Vesser, the director of fun, showed up and told Security to take everything down. Kingston... Icarus and referee Bryce Rimsburg were removed from the ring and they took apart the set and the iPay-Per-View feed ended with a black screen. The fans there were all then kicked out of the arena. All the future dates for the promotion have been canceled. It was noted that even though dates were announced through November, that no tickets had ever been put on sale for any future shows. They had been working on a storyline for a long time building to this with the idea that the promotion had been sold to an outside group. This is where I learned the word conglomerate, which is a real thing. Mike Quackenbush loved the word conglomerate and that they had become a heel group that had screwed with the matchmaking. All the wrestlers had to sign non-disclosure agreements regarding anything they had been told. The going theory is that there was still that the going theory is still that there won't be another Chikara show, but that the concept and wrestlers would be around in some form under 
another name. Mike, what the fuck was <laughs> happening in the Mike Quackenbush, Quackenbush universe at this time? Well, so Wink Vavasaur was a part of like this weird corporate <laughs> raider. Sorry, I didn't realize I butchered another Chikara name. That is a reoccurring theme on this show. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to correct you. It's just they're all you. so stupid. It's going to happen. Oh. I, I'm going to have you introduce the Chikara match on this show because I can't pronounce any of these names. Yeah, no, it's just... So this, the storyline was that Wink Vavasaur was kind of a fail son that was put in charge of this because his dad's company now owned Chikara and he got it from the BDK, the last good storyline Chakara's ever had, the BDK versus Chakara. He was able to assume control, and he was a fail son that was really into saber metrics. That was his gimmick, was like this, <laughs> where he like moved around stables like he put Sugar Dunkerton into fists. He mixed up all the different forms of the colony because there was like eight ants running around the time. There'd be another like four more ants coming soon. It just, it was like something where like he was like, had like his instances of books and then the corporate raider shut down. I remember like on the show also there was like another match where someone was lying out on the entranceway during this main event that literally shut down in the middle of the match. Like Dave is right about this, but like I remember like at this time, CZW fans, which is a long forgotten website, and the other side of DVDVR you had CCW fans had were like talking about people that were there and like some of the Chakara fans were like so distressed that one of them broke one of the glass doors of the Trocadero and it just was insane of course it and it's something that there's never been like the absolute full story because there's non-disclosure agreements which I mean come on guys Mike Quackenbush isn't going to sell you now Th- that's, my DMs that's are open insane that they had to sign non-disclosures for this yes. I did not know that yeah no yeah it was just so that in a year they would do like a dipshit like movie called ashes from shakara there were all these wrestlers <laughs> sub promotions like billy rock had one out in indianapolis That's just right. real real just like what are you doing here man and then they eventually relaunched it after a pro wrestling day and like the big thing about this match was like icarus was being mentored by marty Janetti, but marty Janetti they, they played into his alcoholism as a storyline that he was like not reliable enough to show up just as like there's a reason why Chikara, after like high noon, went into a tailspin, and people don't really talk about that time because it was just, pardon my French, fucking dumb. Yeah, a lot of 2012 is Chikara invades Ring of Honor, and Ring of Honor kind of washes their hands with them. But Chikara gets a ton of mileage out of the Ring of Honor invasion on their end, where the Ring yeah. of Honor guys are heels in Chikara. That's most of 2012, and then by 2013. I am following this promotion. Like like I've been saying on the show, I'm into PWG at this point. I'm watching ROH weekly buying, you know, pretty much all the DVDs. I am into Chikara, but not on this intense level. I'm just aware that it's a wrestling promotion that I like to watch and, you know, the names are weird and the characters are are really strange. I the, the wrestling form that I was on at the time, there was one guy that was like the Chikara guy. And I remember him trying to walk us through everything that was happening. And, you know, on a level, I respect it. I'm glad that they at least tried. I respond to effort, which is going to be a reoccurring theme on this Enter the Dragon fourth anniversary review. But Chikara is never the same. We will talk about the National Pro Wrestling Day return because that will fall into the Dragon USA timeline. And then on our final episode, I will run through a lengthy series of events that happened after Drangit USA closed down just to give the listeners an idea of how much time has elapsed 
elapsed since the final Dragon Gate USA show, the Chikara return is on that list. Plus, then you have the full-time return of Chikara, where they're playing hide-and-go-seek and hot potato and whatever else in front of live crowds. And I've never seen a promotion lose interest, uh, ticket buyers, buzz as quickly as Chikara 2.0. Yeah, because as y'all have been following along with us, Dragon USA was a slow decline. Very much so. Chikara was a train wreck. Like a car crash. Like a literal car crash. Like it, like this happened and then all the goodwill was gone. When they came back, everyone was like, fuck off. It's, it's insane. We'll briefly talk about it because it kind of uh, goes beyond the lifespan of Dragon USA, but it's something we will return to at some point. But for now, Mike, it's the fourth anniversary show, the final anniversary show. I am ready for Enter the Dragon 2013. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun, and sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, oh, hey, look at some random cards or whatever, but if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards... It sucks to have to buy these mystery packs, and it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off again that's arena club.com slash vow net arena club.com slash vow net for 10 percent off your first purchase on arena club and we thank them for sponsoring the voices of wrestling podcast network so am i so as i said at the top this was from the highline ballroom in new york city on july 28 2013 we open with what I think is the most insane graphic that they've had, Case. <laughs> did you notice this at all? Or did you know that, oh, Mike's going to fixate and talk about this for like two minutes? I, 
I will say I noticed it and I thought it was weird, but you clearly have a much stronger opinion on it than I do. So the graphics work for a lot of DGUSA, I mean, they were operating in standard definition and the high definition world. So some of it looks pretty shaky, especially like the Chirons for when people come out to the ring. But for the thing that that was their interstitial thing was going through the sky, counting 2009, 2010, (laughs) 2011, 2012, 2013. Like the fact that they're so proud about existing this. And then you see a uh, 3D graphic of the Statue of Liberty coming up with a fire that like takes over part of what I think is like a Brooklyn skyline. I've only been to New York City once. Don't. Yeah, I I don't know. But like it's a sideline with like a fire with a spinning Dragon Gate USA logo that looks really old in comparison to the rest of it. They will reuse this Statue of Liberty graphic because it's the poster for what became Freedom Fight 2013. So the graphics department (laughs) copy and pasted from what they had for the anniversary show. And it just was just wild me like the the whole like slow crawl and DGSA font of 2009. 2010. It's, it's like the beginning of a Star Wars movie, but it's 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013. There's no long time in a galaxy far, far away. It's like five years, four years. It's four years, and they're, they're treating it like that. But that was the graphics we had. Like most each USA shows, everything happens in the ring now, which is kind of a statement on where the promotion was. Remember when they would have best of year three, best of year two, best of year one clips case? Yeah, not so much here. Nope, nope. We start off with Drew Gulak versus John Davis. John Davis won with a lariat in 7 minutes and 30 seconds, according to cagematch.net. And, you know, this was a fun opener. I liked it. I, I When this match started, I, I wanted to be sure to track down the lineage of anniversary show Dragon Gate USA openers, because this promotion began with BB Hulk versus Yamato, and it transcended into Shima versus Johnny Gargano, Masato Yoshino versus Ricochet, Jake Manning versus Masada, and now John Davis versus Drew Gulak. So we recover from the catastrophe that was Enter the Dragon 2012. And what I thought was a very fun opener, Drew Gulak continues to be very, very fun in Dragon USA. And you can start seeing Gabe's eye move away from the Dragon Gate house style in a way. Each time Drew Gulak gets more and more time. If this was a fun opener. We had no stalling John Davis whatsoever. Yeah. It's almost like we it's almost like they forgot the last 15 <laughs> months with this guy. And this was like a decent like style battle early. And they had like a really effective like two turnbuckle bombs and a lariat and John Davis won. I went gentleman's third. This was a fine opener. I'm right there with you, and there is a reason we talked about Beyond Wrestling on the show last week with guys like Drew Gulak and Biff Busick, who we'll be talking about next week, featured prominently on those shows, and they are very quickly going to be featured very prominently in the Gabe universe. Yeah, and this is something that I, well, I'll say for a big wrap-up show, but this is like this was a moment for me that I was like, I don't think Gabe sees DG USA lasting so much longer with the amount of Drew Gulak they have, and clearly being interested in his ring style because John Davis would go like two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, not like not going back and forth with someone like like Drew Gulak before this. There was a moment in this match where John Davis went to do what I always considered to be a Brian Cage spot. I guess there was some drama between Brian Cage and Michael Elgin as to who started doing this where their opponent is on the apron, they are in the ring and they do the deadlift suplex from the second rope into the ring. John Davis looked like he was going to do that in this match, and then Drew Gulak bit him in the ear, and I really liked that spot. That is a counter that I had not seen to that move before, and one that I welcomed. 
Yeah, yeah, fun match, fun match. Uh, then we went into Shane Strickland versus Caleb Conley. Shane Strickland gets the surprise upset with a European clutch because partway through, Larry Dallas and Trina Michaels uh, tried to apologize, but it distracted him, and then they claimed that they fired Scott Reed, and Trina Michaels came out in a scene t-shirt. So, Mike, did you catch that this was initially supposed to be a three-way match between Conley Strickland and Scott Reed? Yes, that was said countless times by Le- by Lenny on the on commentary. Do you know why it turned into a singles match? I I've heard some scuttlebutt about that case, but I know you know better. So why did this become a singles match? I went straight to the source. I asked uh, the the scene man himself, Larry Dallas. I said, "Larry, talk to me. What happened?" He said, "Scott Reed showed up at the building, quit, and drove home that afternoon." So. Uh, we talked about it at the Mercury Rising show that Gabe was planning on doing a lengthy feud between Caleb Conley and Scott Reed. Probably one of those, knowing Gabe's booking, they probably would have had a match in New Orleans at the next WrestleMania. It seems like Gabe probably would have done a year of that sort of stuff, leading to Conley finally getting his big win. But instead, after they put over uh, Scott Reed the night before Bushido Code of the Warrior, he quits the promotion, he quickly quits wrestling, and they leave Larry Dallas, Trina Michaels, and Caleb Conley in a very awkward position where Conley is now the babyface feuding with a heel manager, and the heel manager has no clients, which is a, a very strange proposition. So that is the Scott Reed story. We never see him again. I don't think I've ever seen footage of him after Bushido Code of the Warrior. I know he wrestled on and off for a little bit, but I've never seen any of it. Have you? No, uh, he started really wrestling chaotic, like chaotic. Like you look at this over the last five years, his last match is June of 2018, but, uh, just really kind of just sticks to, uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking on it. Uh, chaotic wrestling, which, you know, is a Massachusetts based promotion. It is, I think he's from New Hampshire. Yeah. He's from Manchester, New Hampshire. So it's near him. I mean, he's someone that completely kind of dropped off the earth. And I know that not a lot of people have had necessarily like we're like talking about him have had very kind of things. Oh, he is on Twitter, but the last tweet he has is from March of 2018. I, I will say I did not realize that he ended up in chaotic. That's very interesting because even at this point, and we've talked a lot about the, the landscape of NXT at this point, Sami Zayn, El Generico was signed, Pac was signed. Like they are starting to have a real eye on the independent scene. It's not until a few years later that things really pick up in a dramatic fashion, but for a long time, Chaotic was very, very friendly with WWE. They probably had the closest thing to a working affiliation with WWE, more so than any promotion that wasn't a developmental for a very long time. Chaotic was almost like a like a non-official developmental. A lot of guys, Kofi Kingston came out of that school. A lot of different guys came out of Chaotic. And given Sasha, Sasha Banks, another one, uh, uh, pardon me, Sasha stands for forgetting the queen. It just, it's very surprising to me that Scott Reed with his look and his talent working chaotic, that he never ended up in NXT. It's very strange to me. Well, I did a little bit of sleuthing. Uh, He was in charge of a sports nutrition company (laughs) and a... And another, he has two different like sports nutrition companies that have not tweeted since 2018. And his one of his websites, which nice little Chikara thing, Hydra Nutrition. 
Uh, now you say hydro, I think of Jay Lethal and Special K. How is that oh, a no, Chikara tie? Hydra. Hydra. Like, gotcha. Like the wrestler Hydra. Uh, I'm just right now just searching around here. Oh, he he is on uh he is on Instagram. Scott Scott Reed is with us. He he does have a photo posted with him and Akira Tozawa from 2020. Yeah, Scott Reed. I don't. I'm not trying to dox him. I don't know him personally. No, no. Um, but he is on Instagram in case you want to follow him. And as yeah, for, oh, go ahead. Yes, it's it's a bummer because I, I do think Conley and Reed were just bad partners for one another. Because as soon as they break up, I think they both get it so much better immediately. And Although Conley doesn't necessarily look great here, I kind of put that on Shane Strickland, who is really just a hot mess at this point. Gabe clearly wanted to use Shane Strickland, but he is not ready for this level, and I think he's been exposed kind of every single time that he's come into the promotion so far. And, you know, uh, credit to Gabe, credit to Larry for trying to extend this feud in the new dynamics, the Scott Reed absent universe that they are now in. Yeah, I didn't re. I, I knew that he was out of the promotion, but I didn't realize it was that day. Yeah. So, but would it have to? It would have had to be unless he got fired at the show the night before. No. Nope. It would have to be some of this, but like telling him the day of versus being like, "Hey, I'm done that night or before the weekend, so you can book a parent uh, accordingly." That's wild. But yeah, Shane Strickland. I mean, he was a real late bloomer in wrestling, if you ask me. I, so. I there are numerous times, and we talked about this when he came in, where where Gabe tries to get behind him. He he clearly has an interest in him here. When Evolve kind of reboots itself in late 2014, they start doing a thing called wrestler sponsorships, which is how Ethan Page got into the promotion, where Johnny Gargano was going to mentor him, and Rich Swan brought in Shane Strickland, and Swan was going to mentor him, and that never really took off, and it's not until. Uh, Strickland essentially gets signed when Gabe uses him as I think one of the last evolved champions where it seemed like he really had some traction in the promotion at that point but yeah yeah it's just a very strange career Strickland's a guy I've never totally understood and this run of him in the promotion has not been good so far yeah yeah and this match I mean really was just set up for an angle and an angle that you could feel and now that we have the context makes sense why it is that way and why it kind of came off that way but what what Sable right now is feeling more together and with it case than the premier athlete brand as the next match, Anthony Nice with his uh, director of branding, Mr. A and his secretary, Sue Young versus Uha nation. And Anthony Nice gets the win with a four fifty splash. And the first match on the show, I was like, all right, I'm with it. Like the crowd was getting into this. Anthony Nice in 2013 feels like a complete product. No wonder he will have done a tour of dragon gate before the next set of shows. The Anthony Nice revelation is not something I was anticipating coming into this project because my take on Nice has always been that he's a, a guy better suited for the WWE system. I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he's getting paid because, you know, Nice gets brought into PWG around this time period. I think his debut is on the anniversary show in July. He comes in and he never gets over in PWG. That crowd does not take to him and Reseda takes to just about everybody. And so my perception of Nice, even at this point, was like, eh, you know, he's got a good look. I mean, he's fine, but he's not one of those top level guys. I still don't think at this point he was a top level indie guy, but he is a much more put together product than I realized with a great unit behind him with Mr. A and Sue Young. And like I talked about earlier on in the show, Uha Nation returns from injury and hits the ground running. And 
I think, you know, this match at the end of 2011, let's say, when Uha was healthy and young and Nice had done a few scrambles for Gabe but wasn't a full-time guy, I think this match would have been a total disaster. I think it would have been a sloppy mess and both guys would have been hurt from it. And so what we had here is a really, really fun match. Yeah, no, this was an absolute blast. It was only seven minutes long, but for but this is one of those good three and a quarter star seven minute matches. That's just everything, exactly it. It just hit on every level. The act is so good because Sue Young is screaming over dramatically on the outside as Uha is on offense, especially like he was in the military press over the top rope, and Sue Young is screaming. Nice looks great. He has like this really impressive uh, way of being like the first person in the company really to get out of the Uha combination as it started as he got the he got military press he got moonsault but then he grabbed the leg and not let Uha do the shooting star press there was like this 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 countering of a gotch lift like these two guys had a great chemistry and then the 450 like he does two 450s the first one misses and it's one of the more brutal misses I've seen of a 450 splash he basically goes chin first into the mat and then puts him away with a 450 splash and it and it rocks this is the only time that Gabe ran this venue, and I'm I'm quickly scrambling to see if I can get the name of it. But Highline, yes, the the Highline Bar is the only time he runs this, I believe. Maybe there's an uh, maybe there's an evolved show there, but I don't think so. But there's a moment in this match where Uha Nation press slams Anthony Nice onto the stage, and I realized like, oh, this is a pre Laboom Laboom, and that was comforting in a way. Yeah, no, like, this definitely had, like, a charm. Like, everyone was, like, right around the ring. Like, there was, like, stage on like, the bar. Like, this was, I do not have attendance figures, but I guess about 350, maybe. It, it, and that's looked, maybe it looked small, but it looked healthy, if that makes sense. It clearly wasn't a big venue, but they didn't embarrass themselves, at least aesthetically. Yeah, this isn't one of the things, like, that venue in Melrose that never looked filled out, even though they would say, like, they had 400 people there. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know which was, what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Exactly. It was, like, a good-looking venue, the lighting was good. They had a nice staging area, but it seemed maybe weirdly spread out. And also that crowd was just, they were always so dead. That's fair. That's fair. But you know that this, this like, if this was a place that you could run more, which I know that was an issue with like trying to run better places and then like certain financial obligations that Gabe has talked about before about why he left BB Kings. was because they couldn't, because they were supposed to have like, Meal. Food, food and drink sales, wrestling fans, as it turns out, very poor, very cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, people are going to buy t-shirts, not going to buy chicken wings. <laughs> apparently, the chicken wings were good. This, Yes, I've, I've heard Gabe and Lenny say that before. Uh, this is the only time they ran this venue. I thought maybe they did for Evolve 23, which we'll talk about next week. But that was the Guzman Sports Lounge in Ridgeway, New York. And then Evolve 24 and the show that we'll talk about in two weeks take place at the Brooklyn Lyceum in Brooklyn, New York City. Oh, that venue. <laughs> that venue. But yeah, no, this place rocked. I know Chikara ran it some. Like, it, it's a cool venue. I agree. I don't know if it exists anymore. Speaking of Chikara, the next was a throwback to the first show, which I think was nice. This was like the one way they honored the heritage was doing another Chikara 8-man tag. So the teams as listed, and I'll get into it before we get into the match notes, what happened before the match, changing it. The teams as listed were the Batiri of Kadama and Oberian, Chuck Taylor and Ophidian versus Jigsaw, Amasis, Fire Ant, and Frightmare. However, before the match... Chuck Taylor executed a trade and honestly one of the funniest things that I think they've done this promotion was like they traded Ophidian for Jigsaw and it was like Ophidian 
and a 2015 first-round draft pick for Jigsaw and cash considerations. So the actual team was the Batiri, Chuck Taylor, Jigsaw versus the uh, versus the uh, Assyrian portal of Ophidian, Amasis, and then Fire Ant and Frightmare. The fall was Jigsaw with a Jig and Tomic on Ophidian in 10 minutes and 8 seconds. I think the time there is wrong. This match felt a lot longer than 10 minutes long. I cannot do justice to just how funny the trade scenario was. It was executed in the ring, and more importantly, this was Lenny Leonard's chance to shine. He starts going on about how 2015 is so far away, you never know what students the Wrestle Factory are going to have at that point. How are you giving an undisclosed amount of cash for Jigsaw? Jigsaw is such a good prospect. This, oh my God, it was so well done. Like, Lenny has been an excellent commentator since 2005 when he stepped foot in the Ring of Honor, but this is maybe my new favorite moment because he just nailed exactly what the scenario was supposed to be and he drove it home and I was I, I was I was legitimately laughing out loud at this. This was excellent Chuck Taylor comedy drove home with an excellent commentator that got exactly what they were doing. And you know what I'll do? I will grab this clip and put this in the show. It is that good? And Chuck Taylor wants to talk to Fire Ant. I don't know what's going on here. Now, talking to the ref, hey, I got something in my earpiece here. Well, hold, hold on, fans. All right, well, I'm getting word from the ring. I, I, wow, that's unbelievable. Are, are you sure? Well, this is completely unprecedented. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a trade to announce. The Rudos have sent Ophidian and a 2015 first-round draft pick from the Chicago Wrestle Factory to the Technicals for Jigsaw and an undisclosed amount of cash. Once again, that is Ophidian and a 2015 first-round draft pick from the Wrestle Factory for Jigsaw and an undisclosed amount of cash. Well, that is certainly a first. And we are underway. It's it's really, really sad. Lenny's, I mean, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about him on recent shows. He's because he's still excellent. Like, that's all you really have to say about Lenny. And to your point, this was a nice little tribute. I'm glad Gabe did this. Chakar was obviously a buzzworthy promotion, even if they had stopped running shows at this point. The issue is that this match was nowhere near as good as the original Chikara 8-man match on the first show. And you had some people that were in a scenario where, you know, you see the Chikara-ness come out. Yes. And it was kind of botchy towards the end. I went three and a quarter as well because they start stacking up. These botches start stacking up. And it's the people that you probably would expect to be kind of a little loosey-goosey here. And just kind of went like, they say it was 10 minutes case. I think this match was like 15 minutes long if not longer. I'm with you. It felt longer than 10 minutes. It felt like watching Sasuke wrestle in current times where there's an undeniable charm to it. There's there's charisma there that I can get sucked into, but it's just not the same. 
and the finish in particular with Jigsaw hitting, I, I forget what movie he did. He did it on somebody and you do the one, two, the guy doesn't kick out. The referee stops counting. The crowd rightfully just rips this to shreds. And then Jigsaw picks him right back up, hits his finish and they go home. It's, it's probably a three and a half star match, but that finish, I, I have to take a quarter star off. It was really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah. The, this is the difference between t- two matches, the exact same rating. I love that three and a quarter star Uha versus Nice match. This three and a quarter star Chikara eight man. Good. I, it could have been left off the show up and fine. Yeah, and I am not going to have a star rating existential crisis. I know exactly what you mean, and I completely agree. <laughs> and then we had a four-way match, number one contender for the Open the Freedom Gate Championship. The winner of this match, as we talked about last week, will face Johnny Gargano later on in the show. And this is all the uh, Japanese talent is in this one match. It is Akira Tozawa with Christina Von Eri. She did not get written off the night before. De- defeating Shima, Ada, and Tomahawk TT. It was the Genki, a move that I don't think he's done since this match. It, it, it's basically he gets up on their shoulders and does essentially a Meteora down. It's just like a, a penning press that he does on Shima in, six, in 14 minutes and 58 seconds. I love this. Uh, my, my, you, know, you know what my biggest complaint about this match is? If there's one flaw... And I'm not picking on her. But the fact that Christina Von Eri is out at ringside after being splashed by Mr. A the night before, I have a huge issue with. Uh, she's, you know, been harmless for the most part, but she should have been ridden off for good after that splash. I it, I bummed me out that she was out there just because I thought she did such a good job selling the night before. She had her ribs taped up, but it's it's not quite the same. I will throw my star rating out there, and then I'll throw this to you, Mike, for a counter. Three and three-quarter stars. I was only slightly less down. Three and a half. Okay. All right. Very fair. Completely rational. Yeah, no, this was a really fun opening sprint. A lot of fun teamwork. Uh, Ada doing the Davy dive, and one of the all-time, like, he went into, because they had the... the uh, they had the booth seats that were away from the, the seats. He flew all the way to the booth seats that rocked and i thought this was well worked for what it was and given what came after it but yeah christina von erie although she's written off in the next segment did not need to be a part of this she she kills mr ace heat by being out here yeah it, it really it really bummed me out because i thought she was so good the night before in taking that big splash and now this is getting to the part of the show that's going to sound insane. Well, well real, we... real quick, I, I do want to point out on that four-way, it was amazing for me to see, you know, Shima and Tozawa, who, even if I like their matches more than Mike, it's very fair to say they had awkward chemistry. You throw them in there with two young guys. Uh, at this point, I, I forgot to mention we were talking about Kobe World. They had a video package air of T-Hawk, Ata, and UT in Mexico saying that they are about to come to Japan and essentially wreck shit. Uh, he's still going by Tomahawk TT on this show. He would, uh, after this, immediately be recognized as T-Hawk. Uh, for their experience level to hang with Shimon Tozawa in this four-way match, I thought was really, really impressive. I, I will say I picked on Christina Von Erich just a second ago, but she does a spot in this match that I really like where 
they do like a classic Toriumon multi-man spot where Shimon Tozawa and Tiok and Eita are trying to suplex the other two, and Von Eri comes in and gives Shima and Tozawa the woman advantage, and they do a three-on-two suplex spot there, which I thought looked really, really good. It was just a frantic sprint. It's exactly what it should have been. And then this show goes places. Yeah, uh, it's worth noting that they, since you brought up here, like, like we do compliment sandwiches here because that, that was like a that that was a moment that I was like, all right, that that was funny because you also had Shima like not wanting to team up with Tazawa before that, <laughs> which was really good. It was a it was a really fun inversion of that sequence. But all right, everyone, you need to buckle in for this. Uh, I, I, for like the next just gets... five segments, you need to buckle in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will say this. The semi-main and the main event, things get back to normalcy, but we're probably the next 20 minutes are going... You have to believe that this happened because this is some of the most insane stuff that I think Gabe has done on tele- on a TV show or on a wrestling show. It's just insane. It's patently insane we're about to get into, guys. Go for it. Okay, so immediately after uh, Akira Tozawa wins, Johnny Gargano comes out. He makes fun of Shima's losing ways and then calls him a little rascal, which was funny. And then Gargano talks about the last four years of Tozawa and Gargano talking about, hey, we faced we faced in the main event of the last the last anniversary show. But Gargano says, My hamstrings, unlike last night, are properly stretched out. I'm ready to go. So we have an open and a freedom gate championship match, Johnny Gargano versus Akira Tozawa. Johnny Gargano wins in about two minutes. There's no official time here with a with a choked out uh, Gargano escape, John Davis immediately comes out here, lays out Tozawa, and then Gargano throws Davis into Shima. Then Gargano starts attacking Von Eri and then uh, chokes out Tozawa. And apparently this was not a DQ. It just was Johnny Gargano won clean or not clean. He won the title match they promised right there. So what are your thoughts on this before we get really weird? Well, so so let me, let me ask you this because – Maybe maybe I transcribed my notes incorrectly. I thought that Gargano is challenging Tozawa to this match right now, and that is when John Davis comes out and attacks Tozawa from behind, and then Davis and Shima brawl, and then it kind of leads into the match. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I didn't do a great job explaining. Okay, it, so, so like, yeah, so so it's it's a promo segment between Gargano and Tozawa, and. Right as Tozawa's like, okay, I guess I guess we're gonna do this now. John Davis comes and attacks him from behind. The the weird thing is that Davis attacked him after the bell rang, which I'm guessing Gabe didn't want to have happen. I, I I'm assuming that was the the bell ringer's error. But yeah, John Davis just blatantly attack, attacks Akira Tozawa in this match. There's no DQ, and then somehow John Davis and Shima start brawling, which. Makes no sense. Uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of compliment sandwiches in these next few segments. I like the idea of this segment, that Gargano's the heel. The night before, Swan wanted a match. Right as the show started, Gargano said, I'm not stretched out. I don't want it. The next night, Gargano comes out after Tozawa just wrestled a match and says, man, I'm ready to go. I want this match right now. You can still do a low blow in a, a rope assisted choke finish in two minutes, and I'm on board with it. I like the idea. I think that's good booking. The John Davis stuff, once again, not John Davis's fault, but he is used in such a clunky and confusing manner that it completely took me out of this segment. Yeah, it's just like when has 
and, and I had to think about this because we recorded that the match the the show last week. Dozawa and John Davis really haven't had much interaction over the last few months. No, in this promotion, there's no justification for him to come out there. Like his beef was with Chuck Taylor in the Gentlemen's Club. Yeah, it's I I don't understand why he's attacking Tozawa or why Shima. he's attacking Shima and Shima kind of stands up for Tozawa which doesn't make any sense. It's all it's just it's very unnecessary. You could have done this with just Gargano and Tozawa and this becomes a flaw with Dragon at USA and it kind of uh, pertains to another match later where you know, we talk about the independent landscape at this time. You've got, you know, a fresh promotion and beyond. You've got uh, Ring of Honor where they're starting to put things together and PWG, who is the hot promotion at this point. I, I mean, if you've got $15 to spend, do you want to watch a Dragon USA iPay-Per-View where Johnny Gargano and Akira Tozawa have a match where John Davis runs interference? Or do you want to watch a PWG show where you know exactly what you're getting and what you're getting is great pro wrestling? Yeah, and it's something where I'm wondering if there was supposed to, and this is more of a wrap-up kind of thing, if there was supposed to be a prolonged chase with Dezawa, but there was already so many opportunities for Dezawa at that time. Uh, the impression that I get, because there's a lot of farewells on the show that we'll talk about at the end, I think this, in, unless the promotion would have continued on through a fifth year and maybe a sixth year, I don't think Tozawa was supposed to come over until at least New Orleans 2014, which is WrestleMania weekend. I think this was kind yeah. of his designated farewell for the time being. I don't think they were going in a prolonged Davis versus Tozawa direction, and we know for a fact they weren't going in a Davis versus Shima direction. So I don't know what this segment was. Yeah, it's just bizarre. Uh, on commentary, Lenny says, pardon my French, but this is some bullshit right here. <laughs> And again, there's no compliment sandwiches with Lenny Leonard. It's just all compliments. Yeah, he's, he's, he's tremendous. Then we had Air Fox versus Trent Beretta. Uh, decent little indie grappling to start. Uh, Trent won, though, very quickly. We don't have the match time here, but it was like four minutes with a roll-up. I think it's very dangerous for Gabe to have done two screwy finishes back-to-back because this comes off the heels of... Davis and Shima and Tozawa and Gargano and that whole mess, which the crowd, I, I think the crowd was smart enough to realize like, okay, we're definitely going to get something else later on in the show between those two, but they weren't entirely sure what it was at this point to do the Trent roll up right after that. And even if they would have done it later on in the show, I think it would have gotten a little bit better of a reaction had you maybe done the four-way, the Gargano-Tozawa segment, and then Nice versus Uha as a buffer between these two, I think it would have gotten a little bit better of a reaction, but I'm into the idea on paper. Trent just gets a roll-up and he wins the match in like four minutes. But that's not it, Case. No, it is not. Because Trent grabs a microphone. He says, I'm now number one contender. That makes sense. You know, you pin the champion, you should get title shot. That makes all the sense in the world here. Then Fox leaves, and they're like, is he leaving here? He's not in the challenge. He comes right back with the Evolve Championship within 10 seconds, and they call for the match right now. So they literally just did the same angle back-to-back. And we have another match. This is an Evolve Championship match, Air Fox versus Trent Beretta. Air Fox won in 13 minutes and 50 seconds with a top rope sunset flip. Uh, this was awesome. 
uh, by this point, Trent has done a Super Juniors tour, like we talked about last week, and has started to find consistent work in FIP, where he is doing a lot of very good stuff at this point. And this is also peak AR Fox throwing his body around like a madman. He takes an incredibly high-angle German suplex in this match. He does what I think is the craziest bump, where he goes through the low-main pain, and then Trent just shoves him off, which means Fox is taking a top rope bump to his neck. He also does that flipping kind of shooting star press that, he, that he, he's done in pretty much every match he's ever been in. But Trent moves out of the way. So once again, kind of just a spot where Air Fox jumps on his neck. He is throwing himself around like an insane person. He gets Death Valley driver on the apron at one point in this match. Uh, there's just, there's a lot to like from Fox and Trent. I thought this was particularly really strong, and I'm at the same rating I was for the Dragon Gate 4-way, three and three quarters. Yeah, I was three and a half here. Uh, I definitely get, like, the AR Fox love here, but Trent Beretta does not have a defined character in his promotion, but he comes off as such a vicious opportunist yeah. over these last two matches, and that is so awesome, just the way that it plays into, is AR Fox going to survive? And talking about the bumps that he took in this, like, there's legitimate doubt here. They're like, okay, this guy came in here, had his number on the first fall, immediately called his shot, is getting his shot, and is dominating the champion. And is dominating until there's a moment where he goes up on the top rope, and it looks like he's going to finally put him away, but Air Fox is able to get down and then do a top rope sunset flip, which rocked. Like, this was three and a half stars. This, this part of the saga was excellent. Yeah, there's no lineage for the Evolve title at this point. Fox is still the first and only champion, so I think the crowd at this point was really buying into the idea that they could see a title change at this point, and I, I think it would have been very exciting had they done that, but Fox gets the win, and then we're still not done with AR Fox and Tremperetta. No, no, we're not. Uh, Trent picks up the microphone again, he says, all right, we're tied, and I want a third fall. Fox is down, and then Trent immediately lows blows him and on the tact. Match three. AR Fox versus Trent Beretta. AR Fox, this one's non title. They did not say this was a title match at this point. AR Fox won very quickly with a low main pain. And it just basically was a. Just these two guys have for the last 20 minutes or therefore have been at a war and they were at the end of their tanks and they wanted to see who was best. And they, they played these three falls very differently. And I feel like that was a very compelling story. Where overall, in a package, I'm probably three and three quarters for the series. It is in sane to me that this promotion which for reference has i so so let me think about this there's these two shows which are in the new york area evolve 23 yes. and evolve 24 are in the new york area we have six dragon usa shows left and four of the six are in the new york area and then these shows as soon as as they return from New Orleans, the May Evolve double shot is in the New York area. It is insane to me that they blew through three AR Fox and Trent Beretta matches on this show instead of extending them through what is essentially the next 10 months of the promotion. Because realistically... You could have done maybe half of this angle here. You could have done the 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 quick near fall and then Fox getting the roll up. And then you probably could have headlined an Evolve show after that with Fox versus Trent. 
but they burned through three matches and they <laughs> never again have a singles match. This is it. They killed the program in one night. And given the Drangit USA shows, which are going to be uh, just desperate for talent that are coming up in our near future, Evolve is about to go through a complete facelift, but before that, they have to hit the lowest of the low in Evolve 23 and Evolve 24, which I don't know this for sure. This is pure speculation. My guess would be in the pre-Flow Slam era, those are the two shows that did the least amount of iPay-Per-View buys. I don't know that for sure. It's pure speculation, but I know like it's really hard to find coverage for Bushido Code of the Warrior 2013 in the fourth anniversary show online. Basically, no outlet other than PW Ponderings reviewed these shows no one reviewed Evolve 23 and Evolve 24. Those were ghost shows. No one cared. And they could have done Trent versus Fox on one. But instead, they ran through three matches with the same guys in one show. It's insane from that perspective. But I kind of like what they did. I mean, it's cheaper. I think... The third fall, the third Fox versus Trent match, if there's a mistake that was made there, it's not holding off on, again, doing that on a later show. But the quick roll-up followed by the rematch, I really like that. I've said before, there's nothing more dangerous than Gabe Sapolsky having an idea, because it's very apparent when Gabe is thinking. I I have to applaud him, though, this promotion is in a dire situation right now where it's clear that just the people are not into what Drangit USA is selling. And Gabe could have thrown in the towel. And I think that's part of the reason that when Evolve was hitting its demise and when they partnered with WWE on such an extreme level, which I have never knocked Gabe for why he did it, it made total sense. He started drawing the biggest houses of his career. Great. That's awesome. But I lost interest because to me, that was Gabe kind of removing effort from the promotion. He just threw his hands up and said, this is the easy way out. That's what I'm going to that's what I'm going to take. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've never criticized that decision. But as a longtime consumer of what Gabe did, and I liked the fact that I was watching a Gabe Sapolsky book promotion, it bummed me out to see Evolve in the way it did. What I like about this show particularly, and we'll talk about it again in the main event segment, is that this is not a show that could have been booked on a napkin. Not all of these ideas hit. There's a lot of angles on this show, and not all of them are very good. But Gabe put some effort into the show to try to draw a buzz back to the promotion. And Fox versus Trent 1, 2, and 3, while it's probably a little flawed in execution, I really respect what Gabe did. Yeah, and I think I would be a lot higher on it if he didn't have the whole a non-finish or the just insane John Davis parts of the title match that happened right before it. I, I agree. I think that's the big miss on the show because the, the, the like the Larry Dallas and Caleb Conley thing, it didn't get over to a tremendous degree, but I thought it was well executed from their perspective. How could it yeah, exactly. How could- it, but it, it had no chance. But the Davis Gargano mess with Tozawa and Shima, like that was just a poorly booked angle. I think the show would have been much better off without that. Fox versus Trent, again, I think they made a mistake not, you know, saving that final match and headlining a show with that. But 
it's something different. Mike, we've watched 46 Drangate USA shows or something. We have not seen this before. This is something new, and we are now having an extended conversation about it. I know Gabe uh, didn't want that to happen eight years after he booked it, but he's finally getting what he asked for with this segment. Yeah, like, it makes sense. Like, there was thought and care in it, and, and I know I've talked about this episode. There, There is an aspect of Gabe feeling a little bit checked out or looking ahead, but this had some... Th- this had some uh, thought put in it, and you had two guys here that are able to work with what was given. Like, if you had just two wrestlers out there having the exact same match three times, that would be utter trash. But Trent Beretta and A.R. Fox, they understood what was going on here, and you and you have to go with, and you're going to try to do something this ambitious, you have to have, you have, to have wrestlers you have that trust in that they're going to be able to pull this off in this way. And I feel like that that was a success. It just so happened to be right after an absolute just puzzling puzzling series of matches and that's not the last angle and segment we have coming out of this case no because unfortunately i i feel like i just really put gabe over for showing effort and showing care in his promotion and then this next angle happens and it is in my opinion such a disaster compliment sandwiches <laughs> compliment sandwiches <laughs> oh, we, we buried the, the the weird thing before this we put over this but now it's time to bury something again Sue Young comes out with a contract for the Evolve title match, but as soon as A.R. Fox has any chance, Mr. A attacks. Sue holds down Fox for Mr. A's big splash, and then Tony Nese comes out to talk trash. Trent openly says that he's not fighting this, that that guy, and leaves. High point of the segment, Trent off microphone saying, yeah, I'm not dealing with this. I'm good here. And then, but Fox agrees to the title shot. So, Completely blew through an entire few month program in 30 minutes, and now it's time for the next battle for Air Fox. Yeah, it's just it it was a good idea in theory. It was a really poorly executed segment that kind of goes back to my point earlier about PWG. Like, there's no reason that the Premier Athlete brand had to lay out Fox and then for Fox to catch his breath and then cut a promo again. Uh, go New Japan style and just have Nice come right up to Fox's face and say, I want your belt, and then go to the back. It, this was, uh, the intent was correct. The execution of this angle, I thought, was very poor and just an unfortunate part of the Dragon USA universe at this time where it would be one step forward, two steps back. You have something buzzworthy to an extent in Trent versus Fox, and then the next angle, it's just like, well... God, that's not really what I wanted. So it's just, it's a very confusing promotion at this time. Yeah, it's kind of grabbing on to, it's in the raft, it's falling off its kayak, it's in the rapids, and they're trying to grab onto any branch that is there for it. And, And it's just something that, like, you, this is a period of about half an hour where all of this stuff happens, and it happens at such a pace that nothing ever sinks in. And that was something that, like, I really noticed in the, preview in the lead up to the United Gate match was we just had some of the more bizarre parts of anything that Gabe has done post Ring of Honor and nothing got to breathe there was no opportunity whatsoever for the uh, watcher to be like to synthesize like okay so I guess uh, John Davis has this feud against Akira Tozawa or Shima oh Tozawa didn't get a fair match what about the what's going on with Trent Beretta? He just penned the Evolve Champion and had this long combative series. What's next for him? No, you have all of this happening in such a short period of time, but there's no way that anyone can synthesize this. Yeah, it's just, uh, it was a poorly done angle, and 
we're just in a, a very strange point where like we've got two matches left and I have like I've enjoyed this show up to this point, but I am already completely exhausted by everything that's been on this show. And it's just like a short period of time that pulled it off there because we were like chugging through like we had the fun four way. We had a niece versus Uha like having a great time. Then it's like, how am I supposed to watch the rest of this? But luckily for them, they had a United Gate title match. The Young Bucks making a defense of their United Gate titles against the inner city machine guns team of Rich Swan and Ricochet representing World One International. It was more bang on the for your buck on Rich Swan and 16 minutes and 30 questions. And this was the branch that we grabbed onto because we had what I think is one of the best matches of 2013 right here. Okay, so I went four and a half stars on it. That's very interesting to me because I would describe this match. You talked about Nice versus Uha being a very pleasant three and a quarter star match. I would call this a disappointing four star match. Uh, I love what these teams did against one another. They had a great match in PWG at the start of 2013. They had just been involved in an insane PWG ladder match that actually might have been a week after the show. I don't I don't remember the exact timeline, but y- yeah, uh, this is my favorite era of the Young Bucks. I think Ricochet is nearing his peak, and Rich Swan. This is my favorite era of Rich Swan. I thought it was obviously great, but on the great scale, just kind of okay, if that makes sense. I, what really connected with you in this match? Well, I felt like that this was really the Ricochet and Rich Swan show. I felt like that this was like the moment that I knew we were talking about this time period. But this is the moment that I was like, oh, wait, this is at the time one of the best in the world of Ricochet that I'm watching right now. The Young Bucks who have figured everything out. Rich Swan doing some of the best work of his career and just telling like a very satisfying tag team match that had like a perfect, uh, that perfect near falls. The crowd that was just bizarrely dead because of what Gabe did to them for the last hour, getting really into the near fall, especially the standing 450 and the 630 near fall. And I thought like that this like they isolated out Rich Swans, which had Rich do some of the great Bayface selling that we know for him, Ricochet being Ricochet, and just all came together. And maybe it's something that like I need to go revisit the other matches to see if I have like a, a point of comparison here. But just like uh, this match on by itself without those PWG matches, I thought this was excellent. Yeah, it's it's a very very good match. I mean, it's a great match. I gave it four stars. I felt like. It's funny that you're drawing a ricochet in this match. I felt like Swan, he didn't show up ricochet, but I thought he completely outshined ricochet in this match. This was very much, to me, like Swan and Nick Jackson kind of off in their own little universe here killing it. And I, I don't really feel like it was a balanced match, if that makes sense. I, I certainly didn't think... That's fair. I, I didn't think ricochet was bad by any means, but every time Swan was in the ring, I was like, my God, this guy is so good. And it's not that Ricochet was doing a house show effort. It's not that he was botching anything. It, something just didn't click with me here. And I think part of it is that if you put this same match in Reseda, it's probably four and three quarter stars. But something about being in the Highline Ballroom, although this was an active and engaging crowd, it just didn't have that peak that I was hoping for. Yeah, the, no, that's fair. And, and this really is like, the, the thing they took me about Ricochet was on the hot tags. When Ricochet came in and cleared house, I'm like, oh, God, this is 2014 Ricochet. Yeah. Like, that's that's what that's what like, I kind of zeroed into. And maybe it was just me getting lost in the moment because, like, a crowd that's been kind of fine and all of that just got up for this match. And, again, Lenny on commentary going, like, no one likes uh, the Young Bucks. They're not uh, Cornette boys. They're not Russo boys. They're not even Gabe Sapolsky guys. 
<laughs> they're their own guys. <laughs> the gimmick at this point in time for the Young Bucks is that they are disrespecting Dragon USA, which if we've learned anything from their departure, uh, was them working through some personal issues with the promotion. I mean, as someone who's read the Young Bucks book, it is personal issues a lot, and the amount of money that they were getting paid here is not what they felt like they deserved, and, you know, there's a reason why they never came back after they left DGUSA in early 2014. We are on our next episode, I think. If not, the next episode, two weeks from now, going to be talking about a major Young Bucks moment that drastically changes their careers. Indeed, we will. Then we, after this match, we have another big microphone segment. Ricochet picks up the microphone. He brings up the fact that in both of their United Gate title shots, Rich Swan lost both falls, and he brings up his free match that he won, which I completely forgot about. Apparently, since he scored the fall in Mercury Rising, he gets to make his own match. Yes. And he says, he says, we're done here. I'm focusing on singles goals. I'm, fo- I'm focusing on Evolve. I'm focusing on the Freedom Gate. I'm a singles wrestler now. That brings out Johnny Gargano. Lenny does explain it very well when I was lost. Gargano brought up and refuted it and dug into Shima, which Ricochet goes, I don't care right now about him. <laughs> That's years ago. That's years ago. R- r- rare part of Ricochet cutting a funny face promo. And then Gargano brings up Fox and he says, you have your history of Fox. You- shouldn't you go after Fox? You shouldn't go after me. I mean, I'm the people's champion. You can't do this. And that kind of gets uh, Ricochet that makes the decision for Ricochet. He tries to start attacking him. But then Johnny Gargano calls out security to do like this. And then when things got heated and then Johnny Gargano tries to do the go home speech, he kind of stalls because I think they missed the time cue there. But then B Naked plays and Akira Tozawa comes out to restart the title match. They say that, hey, Lenny said, hey, we're not going to let the show end that way. We promised a title match. Akira Tozawa earned a title shot on this match. That was bullshit before. We're having this title match now. And Ricochet stops Johnny Gargano from going to the back and we have... The rematch of the Open the Free Gate Championship, Johnny Gargano versus Akira Tozawa. I don't know if Gabe just like caught an episode of Impact around this time period, but this show reminded me so much of the old Impact gimmick where they were doing Open Fight Night. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. This yeah. was like Dragon USA presents open, presents open Fight Night. Like everybody was doing an angle, everybody was cutting a pro, and everybody wanted a match at that exact second. It was such a strange way of booking this show. And then we get to the second Tozawa versus Gargano match on this show. Again, this was a good show that I was completely exhausted by, by the end. And I guess, like, the big question, I'll wait until after we're done talking about this match. Gargano won with a clean Gargano escape because he was caught with the rope. I went three and three quarters on this match. I thought it was pretty decent. It wasn't as good as the other Gargano versus Tozawa matches, but they had one thing in this match that, really irked me when I saw it case. Can you take a guess what that was? No, I don't think I know. Gargano went for his cheating finish where he did the low bro blow referee distraction and then pulls out his waistband and uses it to choke them out. But Brandon totally caught it, would not call the fall there. But then the face did not win after being this happening. Like, that's the classic story. Like, you've been cheating, but then suddenly the face gets the comeuppance and wins? Like, isn't that, like, how this storyline should happen? Well... Yeah, I think we can kind of do this conversation by making two points, which is the Akira Tozawa what if. What if he ever wins the Open the Freedom Gate title? Because we talked all the way back. We might have had Joey Bay on this show to talk about had Akira Tozawa won the Open the Freedom Gate championship in Atlanta, 
when he wrestled Yamato. At this point, he is still wearing his kamikaze tights. He's on excursion. He's about to go back to Japan. He had just become a star in PWG. I know it's his excursion, but man, it kind of would have made sense for him to win the Freedom Gate title. They didn't do it then. Tozawa goes on to have matches with Pac that are killer, goes on to be the most over guy on every Dragon Gate USA show for the remainder of 2011 into 2012. He and Gargano wrestle again in Taylor, Michigan, which up to this point, and things could change very quickly, but up to this point, I think is the worst Dragon Gate USA show we've seen. And he and Gargano go out there and they kill it. And we thought, man, what if the shot in the arm they needed was Akira Tozawa winning the Freedom Gate belt there. But it doesn't happen. And then we close 2012, and we go to Deer Park, New York. There's a four-way match with, what is it, Gargano, Ricochet, who's the, uh, A.R. A- Fox? Who's the who's the other guy in that match? Uh, which matches? I'm looking through my notes. The four-way at Freedom Fight. It's Gargano, Ricochet, Tozawa. Gargano, Ricochet, Tozawa. I don't think Fox is, was it Callahan? No, he wrestled Shima. What this totally killed my momentum. Who was in that match? Freedom Fight 2012. Yes. Uh, Fox. Okay, it so it was Fox. Fox. Okay, so as I was saying, so it's Deer Park. You've got this four-way. Fox is out. Ricochet's out, and you have essentially in this jam-packed four-way a full-on singles match main event worthy of Gargano and Tozawa. And they don't give Tozawa the belt there. Now, at that point, Gargano had turned into a pretty good champion. And as we've seen this weekend, I think it is a crime. There is a flaw in the wrestling industry that Gargano wasn't handed a multi-year TV contract after this weekend. I don't know if Gabe was intentionally priming this heel Gargano for TV-ready promo stuff, but Gargano comes across like someone that could have walked into Monday Night Raw at this point and would have held his own. He is His heel character, I knew I liked it, whereas I was disappointed with face Gargano for most of the series. I am so impressed with what heel Gargano has been capable of for essentially one and a half weekends, the, the show after he low-blowed Shingo and then what we saw on these two shows this weekend. You have this match with a clear babyface and Akira Tozawa and a clear heel in Johnny Gargano. I don't think it's the wrong story that Gargano won because I think this match in particular, this feels like a a final blow-off. It's so heated. It's so dramatic. The match really takes a turn when Gargano goes to do his lawn dart in the corner and he lawn darts Akira Tozawa's ass all the way to the floor and into the barricade. It is a spot that leaves the crowd hushed. They thought they had just witnessed the murder of Akira Tozawa. And Tozawa comes back. He hits a few big suplexes. Gargano just kicks out. Gargano goes to choke him with the rope. The referee catches the rope. What do they do right after that? Tozawa hits a big German suplex, and he almost pins Johnny Gargano. It's an unbelievable spot. Johnny Gargano hits the Hertz Donut. Tozawa kicks out at one. He gets a big flurry of strikes, and it's just not enough. Gargano puts him away with the Gargano escape. I am okay with that loss, because sometimes the babyface loses. That's what happens. Gargano is a dominant heel champion. But if I had that crystal ball, any of those moments, whether it be Atlanta, Michigan, Deer Park, or now at this show at the anniversary show, I would have loved to have seen what an open the Freedom Gate run from Akira Tozawa would have looked like. 
And on top of that, this is a promotion that, as we've been talking about for like the last two months, basically, since the end of 2011, was trying to do anything to sell tickets and to sell buys. Who was the most over person on, on these shows, regardless of who was brought in? Akira Tozawa. Who's the one person that whenever like whenever there was like a dead crowd they could bring in? Akira Tozawa. Who's the person on the worst show in this company's history in Taylor's Michigan that was just one of those how did this happen shows that you go out there with your really untested champion young ace of that time and delivers Akira Tozawa. There's so many points that you could have seen like this happen. Now, could have been that there was like all the issues between Japan and Gabe and they weren't able to have this worked out? Possibly. But through the last, I mean, Akira Tozawa shows up in 2010 and his first matches are in Toronto, but pretty much like from that point, Akira Tozawa is the MVP of this promotion. And pretty much like I, there might be shows I'm not like super down down on or like super interested in but i know when i see the akira tozawa match i'm gonna be stoked and ready to go and it's something that you like look at the promotion and how we talked about this i believe last week when there was like a legitimate fight on who could have been a number three promotion several times in this company's history why not take the chance you had nothing else to lose like other than the fact that you're not going to be able to have them on your evolve shows which were doing terrible attendance Imagine the buys were terrible at the time. Okay, you have your sub-brand that's uh, like all North American talent, but on what's supposed to be your A brand, the one that you've been saying is supposed to have like a, what was the phrase you used? A premier wrestling event worthy of our (laughs) fans' dollars and time? Wasn't that like a big thing that he was said in 2009, 2010? Yes. Why aren't you getting to the, the person that the people want, the person that, Whenever there was buzz around DGUSA in later years, who was it around? Akira Tozawa. And now in his last night in the promotion, when like he gets the hero's farewell, even more so, we'll, we'll get more into these things when we do a wrap-up, but the number one cardinal sin in my mind in this promotion is the fact that Akira Tozawa did not get a chance to see what would have happened if Akira Tozawa was on top, given how dire the business was. My final point on this, we have the benefit of hindsight, and we know how this story ends. We know how the Gargano reign ends. And because of that, I stand by the booking decision because I like the finale of Gargano's title run so much that it makes the pain of seeing Akira Tozawa lose time after time worth it. I think it's a great old school story, and I'm okay with it. But like I said earlier, my God, I would have liked to have known what a Tozawa Freedom Gate run would have looked like. I think that, like, I don't think that it would have completely saved the promotion to the extent that Dragon Gate USA still exists today, but looking at some decisions that were made at the tail end of this year, I feel like that there might have been a little bit more momentum. Like, people would actually be reviewing WWN shows if I had Akira Tozawa. And I'm saying that acknowledging the, the inherent bias I have whenever I mention anything about Akira Tozawa. But they needed anything at this time. And each time they had the opportunity to, no, the title's not going out to Zawa. And I just can't wrap my head around why that was the right idea. Well, I think that wraps up Akira Tozawa discourse. Mike, this was the final Dragon USA show that Tozawa appeared on. It was also the final Dragon USA show for T-Hawk, Eita, Uha Nation, and Shima. Now, we will talk a few episodes from now about Shima's, uh, I guess, 
absent farewell from the promotion because he is booked on a later date, but he does not make that booking. Uha, at this point, still has a working relationship with Gabe. He is on the Evolve shows in Florida at the start of 2014, and he is on the Evolve shows immediately after the WrestleMania weekend 2014 shows, but he does not appear again in Drangit USA. Tiok and Ata will talk next week about how they land in Japan as the Millennials. And they take over Drangate. Uh, we'll save our Shima discussion for another time. We just had our Tozawa discussion. T-Hawk, Ata, Uha, any closing thoughts on their time in the promotion? Well, Uha is the easy one, so let's get this one out of the way. Uha, I mean, was hurt by injury, and then the native company wanted more in Japan. Yeah. And whenever he worked in Evolve or other promotions, it was secondary. So, I mean, he was always someone that was nice to see and it was someone that you could tell, like, immediately why they brought him over to Japan and then how much he improved in Japan, like, and then having these great sneaky matches here. I mean, like, the only sad thing is that he got injured at, like, the most inopportune time for him in a way because imagine what the Mad Blanky trio at that WrestleMania Miami show would have been like. So, it, it stinks. And out of, like, the Dragon Gate people, I would have loved to see more of it. But, I mean, it is... Uh, I hate to say, like, it disaffected, but I feel kind of like, oh, yeah, no, this was it for him. It made sense. Yeah. I am bummed that we never got Uha Nation versus Brody Lee. It seemed like that was the direction things were heading before Brody was signed by FCW. And you have to remember, the night after Uha is injured at Heat 2012, he is supposed to wrestle AR Fox in a match that they had started to tour around the country at that point. And I really think, not that it would turn Dragon USA business around, not that it would make that big of an impact, but I do think that Uha versus AR Fox match is a real what-if, because I think Uha especially would have blown up to an insane degree, probably would have been signed sooner, quite honestly, had he not been injured and had that AR Fox match taken place at WrestleMania weekend. No, I think that's entirely fair. And I mean, that, that that's a weird thing. Like, Uha Nation is such a peculiar person when we talk about the indie landscape of the 2010s because he never really had the U.S. things. Most of his work was in Japan. He was snatched up and then made good money in Japan. Don't blame him. Oh, yeah, no, he's, he's to just, me, he's a Drangate guy that just so happens to work some indies, but I never consider him to be a part of the U.S. indie scene. No, absolutely so. So, you know, I, I do wonder how things would have popped off if, if that touring match, because, I mean, they were having that match around the Southeast all the time because they both were Atlanta guys, and that's probably why he worked those Florida Evolve shows because he was, I believe, at that time based in Atlanta still. And they had just done it in AIW, which we talked about, uh, I think, probably on that Heat show, if not the, the next week on Open the Ultimate Gate, that they, they had done that match in AIW, and it got over a huge and that was kind of set to become the match, and then it doesn't happen because Uha gets hurt. Yeah. So then the Millennials. Um, T Hawk was only there for a short period of time. He was he felt more over there than he did ever in Japan. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it was great seeing him here. Great seeing him have confidence here. I would have loved to see what a T and E title ran would have gone. But of course, you went with the Bucks there because you when you have the option to go with the Bucks in 2012, 2013, you go with the Bucks. Yeah. But, uh, I. I think had the promotion continued, we would have seen a lot of Tiok and Eita, and we, we kind of have some some evidence to say that that was in the works, and we'll talk about that when we cross that bridge. It was really fun watching them in this time period. I think T-Hawk especially was a very, very strong worker at this time period, and I get the impression, and perhaps it goes to what you were saying earlier about Gabe's shifting interest 
where it's like, okay, yeah, there's there's this Ata guy, but this this Tomahawk TT guy, that's that's the guy. And I don't know if that was a direction from Shima and the Japanese office at the time, or if that's the way Gabe felt about it. But to me, that is certainly how it came across. Yeah, because Ada would just do like undercard matches, like what clearly Akira Tozawa was going to do until he proved to be Akira Tozawa in a way. And it makes sense. T-Hawk does seem more like a Gabe guy than an Ada guy. Like you can see T-Hawk during the grapple fuck era doing pretty well there. Oh yeah. I mean, he it worked in Wrestle 1 where he was kind of wrestling these big bruising heavyweights. I have no reason to suspect that T-Hawk versus, say, Timothy Thatcher wouldn't have not been awesome. Although, yeah, <laughs> those are two guys that have been known to kill a crowd. <laughs> uh, we're, I think you'd have to have an overhousing because that's the one place where both guys yeah, are exactly. sufficiently over. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like, Ata had a lot more of the traditional excursion. And I, it's not that I blame them. It's just like seeing the kind of match, match output we would have from the T-Hawk and Ata team, especially in 2013 through 2015, just kind of like a bummer because like, they had that great match against Super Smash Brothers, and you're like, and, and I'll have to go back still because we've talked about this. I need to go back and watch the Young Bucks versus Tom Hakaneda because that seemed like that could have been like a touring match. Like it's also weird they never worked PWG. No, they never it, worked anywhere in the states other than Gabe. We talked about that during the West Coast Triple Shot at the start of the year, where it seemed really weird to me that Ata did not work PWG because he's a, about a weekend off. From that Dragon USA show, I think the next week was a PWG show, and Ata was in Mexico, and I'm just very surprised he wasn't brought into Reseda at least once. And then, you know, Tioch ends up working years later in Ebola, but that that's a separate universe at that point. Do you know that it's a wild thing that my brother has seen more T-Hawk matches in person than I have? I have yet to see, with the exception of if you count Pac, because I saw him at All Out, I, I have not seen Dragon Gate wrestlers in person, and that really grinds my gears. Uh, before we get out of your case, important question that just popped my head out to know immediately, even though we're already approaching an hour 45 in this, I have to know this. Um, there's the popular game of you time travel and you pick a time period to live in. For you in wrestling, what would have it been? Would it have been like this time period, like 2006 on? Uh... I mean, I really would have liked to have been able to follow Ring of Honor from 04 through 08 because I, I mean, I just became obsessed with that footage as soon as I discovered it when I was 13 or 14. I, I you you asked me this question at a really weird time where I've been Sorry. well, just because I've been really into territory stuff for the first time kind of ever but I mean especially just a renewed interest from where I've ever been I'm really into the territory system right now I would have loved to have been in Houston around 82 when Paul Bosch was running I really like the footage that exists from that Houston promotion um but yeah I mean the 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 simple answer is Ring of Honor during its peak or if I'm living in Japan just any time in the last 20 years so I can go regularly watch Dragon Gate. No, that's fair because my answer actually would have been, I would have loved to have been a teenager in 1978 because I'd be able to see like the beginnings of Flair's rise and then being able to watch world-class growing up. Like I, uh, like I do like, that's a weird thing here. And I think I've talked about this before. 
I weirdly love territory wrestling because I know what it is and I get what it is and I get like such satisfaction watching it. Being able to like be at like the Sportatorium in like eighty one through eighty five would have been like other than like living right now and of course living in Japan, so I could have gone and seen like a characters I was returning in person. I I think I would do that same time period that you're talking about, but I would have gone a little north. I would. Houston, not my kind of scene. I'd have to be back in the Metroplex. Uh, I will say, and I know this is, I think, the longest ring at USA show we've ever done, but I'm currently reading Death of the Territories, and for as much disdain that I have for American politics and the nonsense that, nonsense that goes on there, I love NWA politics, and I love the idea of these businessmen traveling to conventions in Las Vegas and having it out for who is going to be the heavyweight champion I really have begun to romanticize that aspect of pro wrestling. Just go to the Golden Nugget. You, you, you're 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 trying to get this done. Everyone drinking Michelob, not Michelob Ultra, Michelob, <laughs> smoking unfilters, <laughs> arguing about who gets Flair's dates when. I mean, come on! Oh my God, I who love it! I love it! I wish that existed now. God, that rocks! That rocks! But that is a different. That's a different project for a different thing. This is, we, we had like a two-hour episode, so we're not the longest yet, but case, let's take a look ahead because things are about to get really wet in the wild real quickly as DGUSA starts to wrap up. So we got a Fearless 2013 back at the Elks Lodge in New York City. Now, Mike, we've gone too long. I have to get going. There's a name on this show that we will talk about in depth next week, Okay. But I will yes. I will leave this name hanging for a week to see if any listeners pick up on it. But this is Fearless 2013. Uh, the other note, the newswires will really return in earnest next week because I have every newswire from here going forward in my own email. But Fearless 2013, it begins with John Davis versus Earl Cooter. Biff Busick makes his debut with Stephen Walters against Andrew Everett and Caleb Conley. Trent versus Chuck Taylor an evolved title four-way match with A.R. Fox, Fire Ant, Mr. Touchdown, and Shane Strickland. Ricochet wrestles Rich Swan in a singles match. Anthony Nice, fresh off a Japan tour, is going to wrestle Jimmy Susumu. And then your two main events, a non-title match between Masaki Mochizuki and Johnny Gargano, and an open the United Gate title match between the Young Bucks and the Bravado Brothers. I really can't wait to watch the show and talk to you about it, Case. But we're going long, so unless you have anything else to add, I'll, well, let's get out of here. That's that's it. That's all I got. A, a fun episode talking Rich Swan, Gabe's booking, and the territory system. Yeah, buddy. But that's going to do it for this week. With this show, there's only six Dragon Gate USA episodes left. We'll probably get out of here before, like right after Champion Gate, which is kind of wild. But you could follow us on Twitter at open voice gate you can follow me at fujihaya and you can follow case underscore in your case but that's going to until next time and next time where we're going to watch fearless 2013 take care everyone